Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's virtual program at the Commonwealth Club of California. My name is April Domboski. I'm the health correspondent for KQED Public Radio, and I am pleased to be joined today by Abdul El Sayed and Micah Johnson to discuss their new book, Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. Abdul El Sayed is a politician, doctor, and civil servant, and has spent his career advocating for progressive healthcare policies in his home state of Michigan. He has written over 100 scholarly articles, abstracts, and books on public health policy and inequalities in healthcare. Micah Johnson is a physician, healthcare researcher, writer, and policy advisor. He served as the Health Policy Fellow in the U.S. House of Representatives. Medicare for All, a Citizen's Guide, uses research from policymakers, healthcare reform activists to understand the complexity of offering affordable and accessible healthcare. Through the book, the authors guide readers through healthcare reform and offer a roadmap to creating a healthcare system for all Americans. We will be discussing a lot in the next hour, and I want to ask your questions too. If you're watching along with us, please do put your questions in the text chat on YouTube, and we will get to them later in the program. Thank you, Abdul El Sayed and Micah Johnson, for joining us. Um, Abdul, I'd love to start with you. You are both physicians, but you come to this book from slightly different perspectives. Uh, Abdul primarily as a politician and Micah as a doctor caring for patients. So Abdul, why did the two of you want to write this book and who are you trying to reach with it? Yeah, April, first of all, thank you so much to you and the Commonwealth Club for uh, hosting this discussion today about a topic that uh, couldn't be more important given the fact that we are uh, in the midst uh, of the worst pandemic in any of our lifetimes. And uh, it has shown us um, the ways that our system was not designed uh, to take on the kinds of challenges that we've seen from this moment. Uh, we actually wanted to take this book out of the political uh, and put it back in the personal. We wanted to contextualize this conversation uh, in the lived experience of people who are engaging with the healthcare system every day. And by the way, that's all of us because all of us have bodies and those bodies uh, have the potential to get sick. And even if they're not sick right now, um, it's the potential risk of that illness that uh, motivates us to even engage with you know, a market like the insurance market. And um, we wanted to take this out of the conversations that had been had in the lead up to both the 2016 and 2020 primaries uh, and put it back into a conversation about uh, what health means for us, what healthcare uh, means for us, what the consequences of healthcare being uh, what it is in the United States uh, means for our daily lives and uh, the lives of our families, and what it would mean to actually build a healthcare system um, that really does take on the challenges that we live in our lives uh, and does what almost every other high income country in the world does, which is recognize that the government has a responsibility to take up this issue uh, and provide us the kind of sureness that we want from our insurance uh, that we do not get. And so um, that was really the motivation uh, that, that we had. Micah and I uh, worked together uh, a bit uh, on my campaign, actually, when I, I ran on uh, a single player platform for the state of Michigan um, and coming out of that campaign realized that we need to keep the conversation going because um, of the ways that we kept hearing the industry's talking points parroted back to us um, rather than people situating this question of what we ought to do in healthcare uh, in their own lives and their own experiences. And you really lay out, you know, the the problems that we have in our current healthcare system. Uh, you sort of illustrate that through the story of a woman named Lisa. Um, Micah, can you 
uh, talk us through her story and how it, how it illustrates the problems in our system right now? Yeah, and the reason I'm so passionate about this issue is when I went to medical school and now as a doctor seeing how the system as it stands and also most of the political conversation doesn't meet the challenges that patients are facing every day. And Lisa's story, she is a woman in her 30s. Her husband, Dominic, had already had a brain tumor a couple years earlier, and they're celebrating their 15th wedding anniversary, going on a weekend trip away from their three kids, when Lisa started to feel this pain in her chest and got nauseous and started vomiting. And they were already scared to call an ambulance because her husband's had cost them almost a thousand bucks when he got diagnosed. So they start driving in to find the nearest emergency room as Lisa's arm is starting to go numb. And when she gets into the emergency room, she immediately goes into cardiac arrest right there in the waiting room and she starts getting CPR. She ended up spending nine days at the hospital. She had a very rare form of heart attack called a spontaneous coronary artery dissection. And she had a defibrillator. She had a mechanical heart pump for several days, discharged on all sorts of prescription drugs, needing to do cardiac rehab. But that wasn't the worst of it. She started getting bills for over $100,000. And with the deductible plan, they tried to save on premium costs by getting a high deductible plan like so many Americans. They had to eventually start a GoFundMe page for their friends and family to chip in just to keep them afloat. But then January 1st rolled around, their deductible reset. They were back at square one trying to pay for the ongoing treatment. And the human toll of this beyond the financial toll is Lisa says that the hours spent on the phone with the insurance companies, the hospitals, the imaging centers. There were times when those things were more stressful than her own cardiac arrest or her husband's brain cancer diagnosis. So the reason Lisa's story is so important is that it debunks the myth that people with private insurance are doing fine in our current system. They're not. Lisa and Dominic had private insurance, they had employer-based insurance through, through Dominic's job, and they were still left to bear the brunt of the failures of our healthcare system. So that's what's changed over the, last, over the last few decades. You now have the broad middle class, folks like Lisa and Dominic, that have what is supposed to be the best health insurance that the country can offer that are still getting hurt by the system. And Micah, um, you also, you know, before we get into the details of, you know, what a Medicare for Plan All could look like, um, you lay out the history really nicely about how how we got to this particular system that we have in the U.S. And it was really interesting for me to read that in the first couple decades of the 1900s, several other countries in Europe were were establishing national healthcare systems and that in the US there were some politicians who wanted to do this too can you just explain you know what happened that that did not come to pass here and what happened instead to shape you know the healthcare system that we have today there's a few reasons how we ended up being the only country that doesn't have a universal healthcare plan and a few of the factors that came in time and time again over the last hundred years. One is opposition from the healthcare industry. And the second is racial discrimination. And you saw this, for instance, in first in the 1930s, when FDR was initially going to make healthcare part of the New Deal, 
but he said that he just couldn't stand up to the state medical societies. They're just too powerful. So didn't even propose health care as part of Social Security and waited to the 1940s, when then Harry Truman, as sitting president, was a sponsor of a single-payer health care plan. And then it was doctors, mostly organized through the American Medical Association, that took down the plan with the single most expensive lobbying campaign in the history of the country to defeat single-payer health care in the 1940s. But they teamed up with Southern segregationists in Congress. So you have racial discrimination and industry working together to block health care reform. And you almost saw that again in the 1960s with Medicare, where again, it was the healthcare industry and it was Southerners who didn't want to have Southern hospitals integrate if Medicare was passed, who teamed up to block Medicare for years and years until it finally passed. So that's how universal healthcare got blocked. And then along the way, we started developing a private employer-based insurance system. And that has grown with the failure to enact a universal public plan. We now have this patchwork of public and private mixtures that still leaves 30 million people out. So, Abdul, um, you know, I'd like for you to address, you know, Micah has laid out some of the, the problems that we have. Um, and I'd love to start talking about some of the ways that a Medicare for all plan could start to address some of these problems. And both of you lay out so nicely and clearly and in a simple way, you know, what would be involved in a Medicare for all plan. So let's start talking about that. You know, maybe, Abdul, we can start with, you know, what, what would be covered? Yeah, well, let me just step back for a second, and I, I want to give folks a sense of why our system is so broken. Um, you know, it's it's on vogue to to think of ourselves as customers of healthcare, and there's a really big problem at the central core of that, which I'll introduce by analogy. Let's say, right, you're hungry and uh, and you want to pick up some carryout. Uh, you make your order, and then you go to the store, and given that it's COVID, you know, you, you, in a very socially distanced way, pay for your food. And, um, and you will offer that cashier money for the service, the, the, the food that you pick up, right? You are the customer in that circumstance. You are the payer who paid for the food. The problem, though, is if you think about the way that our healthcare system works, is that there are really two huge sectors, industries. Um, that exchange funds in our system. You've got the health insurance industry here, and you've got the hospitals and, and clinics and doctors over here, right? And if you think about it, you, for the privilege of being covered by an insurance company, are going to pay every two weeks, you and your employer, something called a premium, so that that insurance company is there for you. But if you're going to get sick, you go to the clinic in the hospital, right? You get your services, and then, right, they don't bill you for that. They bill your insurance company. So there's a financial transaction that happens between the insurer, the payer, and the provider, right? And you and your illness are the reason why that happened. So if you go back to the analogy of the carryout, right, you are more the product, the reason why a financial transaction happened than the customer, the one who's paying for the financial transaction. And between these two industries, there's a whole lot of jockeying around the price of care that leaves the cost of care going up on everyone, right? And doesn't really protect you from that. Uh, overall costs in the way that insurance companies have devised things like deductibles, which is a paywall for the healthcare that you already paid for, uh, or coinsurance uh, that uh, that would um, uh, make you pay some of the cost of your healthcare, and all of that means that the cost of healthcare goes up on you, and it's less secure for you. So, going to this question of Medicare for all, what it offers us, right? It's not just that it would cover all of the healthcare that you would need uh, to keep yourself healthy and alive. 
It's the fact that now, instead of having multiple different insurance companies on this side, right, who all have an incentive to outcompete each other, you've got one, right? And that is Medicare or the government. And because you have one, all of the overhead costs that went into allowing these folks to crosstalk in the first place goes away. And these folks can set the price for care, which means that the escalator that keeps uh, the cost of healthcare going up also goes away. And because it's the government and you're a taxpayer or even you're a resident of the country, forget being a taxpayer, right? The, the, the insurance system is there for you, whether you change jobs, lose your job, turn 26, whatever, all, there, all the other reasons that people lose healthcare uh, in America. So the sure insurance um, becomes a lot more stable for you because uh, you're there. And you know the other point of this is that you think about who pays for healthcare in America, every single dollar spent in healthcare is a dollar that comes out of somebody's pocket. And that's something we have to remember. Now, the question is whose pocket does it come out of? Disproportionately in our country, it comes out of the pockets of poor people. That's what happens. And a lot of people are left out of that system because of that for-profit insurance system. It leaves out about 10% of people. And in this system, uh, what we're doing is asking people to pay their fair share. Um, and as a taxpayer, resident of the United States of America, you get that health care. It doesn't matter what happens to you. Uh, and uh, it truly is. It puts the sure back in insurance. One of the things that you point out in your book that is that Medicare for all, the it's it's not the government actually providing the care. It's the government paying for the care. So it would still be hospitals and doctors who are providing the care. And so... Um, Micah, maybe you can explain how how would hospitals and doctors get paid under this system and what would happen to the private insurance companies? Yeah, so the way that hospitals and doctors get paid would be pretty similar to how they get paid by Medicare now, where a huge amount of the funding for doctor's offices and hospitals already comes from public programs. And what would happen under Medicare for all is Instead of getting paid by one of the several hundred private insurance companies, no matter, depending on which patient walks in the door, all the patients would get reimbursed by, by Medicare. You know, and there are some policy debates we go through in, in the book. You know, Medicare for all is a big idea. There's a, there are several different ways that it could be designed. So one of the things that, that we can debate and decide is what is the exact mechanism for how Medicare for all would pay hospitals? And, you know, it's a health economic and health policy wonks love to have the debates about the technicalities of this. The bottom line is that under Medicare for all, you have much more power to do innovations in payment, where if you have 900 different insurance companies and each one of them is trying to do something uh, with their payment to change the behavior of hospitals, no one's really big enough to drive change. So already in the current system, Medicare is the innovator when it comes to how to pay doctors and hospitals. And under Medicare for all, there'd actually be a lot more power to drive the changes in the payment system that, that we need. And then in terms of what happens under private insurance, the, the short answer is it would be similar to the traditional Medicare program today. Private insurance would not be allowed to cover the same services that Medicare for all would. There'd be a small supplemental market for um, if there are things that are not covered by Medicare for all, private insurance would still be able to cover those things. I think the goal for most Medicare for all advocates is we want to cover all medically necessary care. So there'd be a very small slice left for whatever the elective or luxury services are that there's a private market for. So the bottom line is everyone would have guaranteed access to healthcare under Medicare for all. And then when they go in to see their doctors and hospitals, they get reimbursed by Medicare for all, similar to how they get paid by Medicare today. 
Abdul, you were talking about how, you know, uh, people with lower incomes and in disadvantaged communities end up paying a, a disproportionate share. Um, and, you know, the way that our, you write about how the way that our current system is set up, it, it rations care based on income rather than need. Um, and so, Abdul, what ways could Medicare for all improve some of these inequities in our system? Well, we know, um, just to take the, 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 the current situation at hand, COVID-19 has disproportionately uh, taken lives of and uh, made ill black and brown people in this country, two to three times the probability. In fact, we just saw life expectancy numbers come out for the first half of 2020, and we found that the overall life expectancy dropped by a year, but black life expectancy dropped by nearly three years. So what that tells us, it's not just that black folks are dying uh, at a higher clip, it's that they're also dying younger when they die, because that's why uh, the life expectancy dropped even uh, greater um, among these groups. And so um, we have a serious um, issue with that. And, you know, the healthcare system isn't the only solution. In fact, the reason people get sick and die at a higher clip uh, actually has a lot more to do with the circumstances in which they live. But the burdens and the barriers that we've put in front of people getting healthcare are part of the problem, too. If you think about the healthcare um, that people get, they're disproportionately likely to be uh, uninsured, first of all, but also if they are insured, they're more likely to be uh, insured on Medicaid if you're black uh, or brown in this country. And we know that Medicaid doesn't reimburse at the same rates. And given segregation, that means that hospitals tend to be reimbursed at lower rates in communities that, uh, that, that, that are disproportionately black and brown, which means that the services uh, at those hospitals are just poorly funded um, and those hospitals tend to be of poor quality. And so the, the lack of access to insurance uh, among black and brown people as a function of the way our system works, um, basically cements a system where uh, you get worse access to healthcare uh, and worse healthcare across the board, even if you do have access to it, if you're black or brown in this country. Uh, and so if we're serious about addressing uh, inequity, then we have to be serious uh, about providing everybody the same basic healthcare coverage. And uh, the reality of this is that, you know, all of our bodies are made out of the same stuff. They should be covered in the same way. It shouldn't be that if you're a CEO of a company, right, that, that your flesh and blood gets covered in one way uh, versus if, if you are uh, low income or, or even homeless, that your flesh and blood uh, gets covered a different way. The, these are the same bodies. And if we believe in the end that healthcare is a human right, then we've got to be serious about doing that thing. But there's another piece of this, too. Part of the reason our healthcare system does such a poor job actually preventing illness is because we spend 17 cents on the dollar for every dollar in our economy providing people health care in this bloated, uh, inequitable way. And if we're serious about prevention, then what we'd want to do is free up some of those dollars and put them into the front end of keeping people healthy in the first place. That would have a disproportionate impact uh, on the lives of black and brown people as well. And so, um, you know, it's not just about making sure that everybody's body is covered, uh, but it's also about making sure that our healthcare system is prioritizing and incentivizing the right things, which, uh, as this pandemic has shown us, has to mean public health investment uh, and prevention. I was the health commissioner for uh, America's largest majority black city. I was responsible for rebuilding a health department that had been shut down, right? Our city literally defunded public health. And part of the reason why is because uh, we are so invested in a system of care that tells us uh, that we have to be spending this much money to provide people health care rather than investing on the front end uh, of, of keeping people healthy in the first place. And if you were to turn the government into everybody's health insurer, the government how has a much bigger incentive to keep you healthy so it doesn't have to spend those dollars on the back end. Um, but right now with 900 different health insurance companies, nobody actually holds the bag when it comes to prevention and it doesn't get done. 
You know, when I talk to doctors uh, about social determinants of health, I notice how often people will say, we'll talk about the problem, but we'll also say, well, you know, by the time they get to us, they, they kind of throw their hands up and say, well, these patients are so sick, you know, like there's not much we can do for them. And, and you talked about, you know, a, a Medicare for all system incentivizing to do that kind of prevention work. But you also wrote in your book about how expanding health coverage itself can actually lead to improvements in housing stability and food security. Can you can you talk a little bit about that research and, and how that might work? Yeah, so it's exactly right where we often think about, we separate the social determinants of health, where you live, where what kind of job you have, whether you have access to healthy food on one side, and then we say we have the healthcare system on the other side. But really, the way that we pay for healthcare makes all of those other things worse. Where you know some of the research here finds that each year medical costs put nearly 10 million families into poverty, and hundreds of thousands of families into bankruptcy. So it's not surprising that when they do studies of what happened when, for instance, Medicaid expansion happened, and lots more people got health insurance, well, it turned out that evictions went down and food security got better, and the ability for people to find good jobs got better. So it's, it's exactly right there. Healthcare isn't everything. There are things we need to be doing on housing and our food system um, that have nothing to do with healthcare. But by changing the way that we pay and by taking this enormous financial burden off the backs of families, that's also a way to improve folks' materials, material conditions in a much, much broader way. And I think one of, one of the, um, the studies that we cite in the book shows that for the bottom fifth of families, they're spending on average one third of their income on healthcare. And that's through whether it's deductibles or healthcare taxes or out-of-pocket costs. So it makes sense that if we were to reshuffle the way that we pay for healthcare, you free up so much more money for food, for housing, and all these other things that keep people healthy in the long run. Mm. So let's tackle the $52 trillion question about how we would pay for a Medicare for all plan. Um, there, you write about, there's something that really struck me. Uh, you write about Elizabeth Warren's plan for financing Medicare for all, which is designed to uh, avoid raising taxes on the middle class, and that Bernie Sanders' plan actually involves a new middle class tax. And that the idea here is that while a plan like that might be more difficult to pass, it would be more resilient once in place. And so, Abdul, I understand you worked on Bernie's campaign and that, Micah, you worked, helped with Warren's plan. I'd love to hear both of you offer the merits of these two approaches. Well, to step back on this question, right, the, the, the question we ought to be asking right now is how in God's name can we afford to pay for a healthcare system that costs on average 1.7 to two times as much as other high-income countries spend per person? Like that, that really ought to be our baseline question. Once we've answered that question, the obvious question then should become, all right, how do we fix that? And Medicare for All not, doesn't just uh, 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 more equitably transfer the costs of healthcare but it also reduces the overall costs of healthcare. Almost every analysis that has looked at this has shown that. And it reduces it by reducing the overhead that we pay into things like you know, CEOs' salaries, 
and it reduces the things like advertising budgets on behalf of health insurers, and it reduces the army of billers that we need on both the healthcare and the uh, insurance side. In all those ways, it reduces the cost. And if every dollar spent in healthcare comes out of somebody's pocket, then we have to remember that all of those costs are coming out of our pocket, and we would be better off spending less uh, than we spend right now on things that we don't necessarily need to get one of the most inequitable, inefficient healthcare systems in the world. And so that I think is, is, is the most important point here. But to get to that question, personally, I believe that at the end of the day, um, you want to take a public program like this and give everybody buy-in to it. And in some respects, right, there is a psychology about this, which says that if I'm going to get a service, I want to have paid for my service. That's my stake into that service. And so including, right, a piece of the financing, that is everybody's individual stake in their healthcare system, uh, actually makes it more resilient because people are going to fight for that thing that they invested in. And, you know, again, these are, at some point we're, we're, we're sort of, um, we are, uh, uh, picking at uh, different small pieces of this, I would have supported uh, Senator Warren's plan as well. Uh, but I do think that including more pieces of funding both makes it generally more resilient because uh, if one piece of the funding were to go away, you've got other pieces. But also, also on the political side, giving people a stake in investment in their own system, I think really does matter uh, and allows it to see themselves uh, or see it as something that they paid into. I mean, you think about Social Security and Medicare, right? People see line items that come out of their taxes every couple of weeks and say, you know, that's going to be there for me uh, in the future when I need it. And I, I think that there's some real value uh, in doing that with, with healthcare as well. And looking at that cost versus the cost that they used to pay uh, in uh, either employer funding or direct funding for uh, their employer-sponsored health insurance uh, and seeing that they're getting a better service for less money that's going to be there for them no matter what happens, I do think that that's really valuable and, um, and both from a policy and a political standpoint, uh, really, really helpful. Yeah, and the big picture here, exactly as Abdul said, we go through in the book about a dozen of the studies on the overall cost to the country of doing Medicare for all compared to our current system. And really, at this point, there's a consensus that it would cost similar or less. And even after the, the book came out just about a month ago, the Congressional Budget Office, who in the policy world is kind of the gold standard scorekeepers for what things would cost, did an extensive analysis of Medicare for All, and they agreed that it would cost less than our current system under almost all the different ways that it could be designed. So that's, that's kind of the first piece. And that was one of the things that was most surprising and impressive to me when I started working on this issue, where it just seems like it should cost more to cover everyone, but it's not. And, you know, the reason is, well, it's our current dysfunctional system is the most expensive one in the world. It actually shouldn't be that surprising that it costs less to rationalize the system. And, you know, there, there's, a, there's a good debate to be had about, all right, so it costs less overall, but how are you actually going to raise that money? But there's a good debate to be had about how exactly to do that. I think, you know, the number one thing that people should remember is that there are a range of plausible ways to, to fund Medicare for all. And what we saw in the Sanders and Warren proposals is two ways at the same question, which is you need to show people that what they would pay for Medicare for all is going to be less than what they pay now. And one of the political challenges of that is the way that we pay for healthcare now is so opaque where people think that what they're paying for healthcare is just, say, if you have employer-sponsored insurance, you think it's your out-of-pocket costs and it's your individual part of your premium. 
But really, that turns out to be about a fifth or less of what you're actually paying for healthcare. You're actually paying much more for healthcare in the fact that your employer is sending the insurance company a huge premium. And that's not free money. That comes out of money set aside for your compensation. And you're paying taxes through, through Medicare and Medicaid. So one of, one of the challenges here, and one of the things that both the Sanders and Warren plans try to get at is, how do you make people you know, think about what they're actually paying for healthcare in the status quo and compare that to whatever the new funding mechanism is under Medicare for All? And the, the economic facts are that the vast majority of people would pay less. And now it's really a political challenge to, to get people to see that and to trust that. And uh, I think that's one of the, the, the big remaining challenges that started during the Democratic primary, but that's going to continue in the coming years as well. We're starting to get uh, some questions from the audience, and I do encourage folks to uh, continue to submit their questions. Uh, I'm going to take one now, which is, um, can you explain uh, the difference between, you know, a Medicare for all system that we might you know, that we might have in the U.S. and how it would compare to the national public health care systems in places like Canada or the U.K., which even between the two of them, I believe, are, are quite different. Yeah. So I would say that there are a couple models globally for how to do universal health care. Two of the most common are Either it's a government-run national health service, so the doctors in the hospitals are almost all um, government-operated, and that would be like the United Kingdom, the National Health Service. Of course, in the U.S., we kind of have many versions of all the different healthcare systems, so our version of the British system is the VA. So the Veterans Health Administration is essentially socialized medicine in the U.S. The other main model globally is single-payer. So what we mean by that is the payment system, so insurance, is public, run by the government, but the doctors in the hospitals are private. So that's more like Canada. Canada's program, the doctors in hospitals are private, but the insurance is public. So that's where the Medicare for All proposals would, would lie, be more like Canada. Taiwan is another example that has, has a similar system. Um, and that's how, and you know, really, I think that's a legacy of what do we have in the U.S. that is highly successful and highly popular? It's Medicare, and that's how it works. And you know, I think one of the ways that Medicare for All would be less disruptive than it's often made out to be is the way that people get healthcare now is they walk into whatever their preferred doctor or hospital is, and then on the back end, you've got Medicare or your private insurance company paying the bill. Under Medicare for All, it'd be the same thing. You'd walk into the same doctor or the same hospital. It's just on the back end, it would change, it would change who's paying. Um, you know, you outline a number of alternatives in your book to Medicare for all. And it just, you know, some, some questions people are sort of asking is like, you know, why can't we just fix some of the problems in our healthcare system individually? Why can't we just fix, you know, some of the overcharging that we see by hospitals, uh, and drug companies, you know, why, why would we have to overhaul the entire system? I'm going to give a, a um, go on a limb here and offer a metaphor um, that I hope helps is imagine you've got a swimming pool and the swimming pool has been infested by a bunch of barracuda, right? And you say, well, you know, if I, uh, if I, um, uh, you know, were to treat for all of the other things, but maybe just leave the barracuda in the water, it'd be safe to swim ish. Right. And, and the problem with our system is that it's not that we don't have enough in the past, the, the conversation about 
uh, healthcare used to be, how do we cover healthcare for low-income people? That's no longer the only salient question here. The other piece of the question is, how do we address the systematic inefficiencies that are created by a uh, large for-profit industry that exists to do nothing more than what the government could do more efficiently and for less money? And so and if, if we're not willing to deal with the structural inequity of our system, the structural brokenness of our system, the barracuda in the water, then we're never really going to have the kind of system that we deserve that delivers the kind of outcomes that we need. And so it does, it means, yes, offering something, but it also means getting the barrier out of the way. And right now, the way that we've accommodated our private for-profit um, health insurance sector, right? And I, I use for-profit in the way that, um, you know, a, a CEO's, uh, uh, a bonus is going to be tied to how much money this, the, the CEO's company makes. To me, that looks like a for-profit, whether you call it that or not. Um, and, uh, and, 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 and provide the service that, that people deserve uh, independent of that. Now, don't get me wrong. I think there are a lot of ways to expand health coverage and to make the system more equitable and sustainable over the long term, leveraging the, uh, the, the edifice that we have right now. But if we are serious about solving all the problems, uh, and we really do want to take on um, the, the cost and the inequity challenge, it's going to mean, uh, you know, starting back from scratch in terms of the way that we insure people and Medicare for all does that. The other point I'll make here is this, 60% of all healthcare dollars are actually funded through the government anyway, right? Because um, if you think about it, the people who need the most healthcare tend to be the people who've already gotten to Medicare. Um, and, uh, and so for that reason, it's not like we don't have a, a, a system in place to build from. It's that we allow, right, the prime uh, folks that we want to be insured, right, to, 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 to uh, have to go to this private market um, to get that service. And, uh, you know, if you think about how insurance works, right, for the listeners, you, you've got a pool of people. And the best way, right, to provide uh, a sustainable pool is to increase more people who pay more in and take less out. And those tend to be the folks who, who, who are between ages, uh, you know, 18 and, and, and 65. And, um, instead of having them pay into the public program to make it more sustainable, uh, instead, we uh, allow them to be profiteered upon uh, by um, this, this system of corporations uh, that become in that way a real barrier to the kind of system that we deserve in this country. Another question from the audience. Uh, many other countries with government paid health care have the option for people to pay for private insurance on top of that, does your vision include this, or do you both advocate for a single all-inclusive program? So in we, we have a whole chapter on designing Medicare for All and what are some of the policy choices that, that would come up. And it's right, internationally, countries have come up with different answers for if you have a universal public insurance plan what role should be left for private insurance? So some countries, and the United Kingdom is an example, say that we're going to allow you to buy private insurance that covers some of the same services that the, that the public plan covers. Now, the Medicare for All bills in the House and the Senate wouldn't, wouldn't allow that. And we go through some of the trade-offs in, in the book where it's one of the risks of doing of doing this is you end up having a parallel track where wealthier people can buy out of the public system and you know one of the one of the challenges is then it takes some of the most influential people in the political system and having them be no longer invested in the universal program that works for everyone 
but instead investing in these ways where they can somehow get get some kind of special care. So um, it's exactly right that there's that there are different ways of doing this, and there are there are trade offs to doing it. But I think what's what's probably most important is how do you make sure that the universal system actually works well for everyone? And the important thing here is let's look at the difference between Medicare and you know universal programs like Medicare and Social Security versus programs that are targeted uh, to low-income folks like Medicaid, where Medicare and Social Security have been incredibly resilient. Both parties are constantly trying to, to make them better. And of course, there are ideological battles, right? That's, that's politics and that's democracy. But it's so different where when you look at Medicaid, when you target a, a specific income group and take out the most powerful people in the society, you now have you know, one of our major parties constantly trying, trying to gut it, trying to, to put up extra barriers to get access to healthcare. And it's, it's a much more tenuous place to be in. So one of the, the critical components of doing something like Medicare for All is how do you build a system that the rich and the poor and folks of all races all rely on together? How do you build that solidarity through the design of the program? And what you're talking about kind of raises another question that you also bring up in the book is the idea that, you know, if if Medicare for all were to pass, that, you know, there's this very delicate question of how we would transition into that new program. And you write moving too fast risks failures that could hamper faith in the program moving too slowly risks attacks if the political winds change. So Abdul, I'm hoping you can take this one. If legislation like this passes, how do you protect from a new administration that may be hostile to it the way that we've seen with the Affordable Care Act? Yeah, let, let me unpack that point because I think it's, 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 there's a lot there um, to explain. Uh, the, politically, right, you really want to um, get the service out to people before the other party has a, uh, a shot at trying to dismantle it. Because in history, any program that's delivered high quality services to folks tends to become really popular really fast. Medicare, Social Security, the ACA, right? Um, aside from uh, a few ideologically driven folks, most folks really like the ACA. And in the places where they, they least like it is the places where they decided at the state level not to fully accept it, right? Through, through, through Medicaid expansions. And so uh, so it is a very popular thing. And politically, you really want to get um, the, you know, the, the medicine into the blood, so to speak, uh, before uh, the opposition has a chance to, you know, to put more of its poison uh, out there. Um, policy wise, you know, you want to be able to take your time, right? You want to be able to make sure that all the pieces work. You know, we all know that from the ACA, uh, if you were watching that, uh, the, the, the probably the, the, the biggest uh, 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 thorn in the side of the ACA was healthcare.gov and the fact that the rollout was was somewhat botched. Um, and so you really need to balance the policy priority with the political priority. You need to move at a timeline that allows you to get the thing done and to, 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 to do it well, and at the same time, the ability to get into the blood quickly uh, before the opposition jumps. Person, I mean, there are a lot of different ways to do this, and we talk about it, right? Um, I think a lot of it really sits with how do you want to think about engaging the states on this front, right? And, um, you know, if, if you're able to uh, really leverage state, the, the state and the state's leadership um, and sort of facilitate getting uh, funds and resources out there and um, support, it's possible that you, you know, parallel process uh, this rollout uh, across the states. 
The other approach is to sort of think about it truly in the way that Medicare works, uh, which is as a, uh, you know, a federally funded and operated program. Um, but that, you know, means expanding uh, to uh, hundreds of millions of people, which, which is not an easy thing to do. And so there are these trade-offs and it's important to be thinking about the ways that uh, your, policy, your policy goals and your political goals uh, have to align in the way that you think about your, your timing on this. Um, so another question from the audience, uh, many argue that Medicare for all would decrease most doctors' incomes. What should be done when a lot of them have massive loans to repay? Do you want to take that one, Micah? Sure. Yeah. So another one, I'm glad you asked. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about this, where if you look at, you know, kind of step back, big picture. What we're saying is that Medicare for all is going to cost similar or less to the current system. And where the savings come from, a lot of it is through administration. So things that Abdul have already have already talked about. And just, just to add a little color here, so we, we know what we're talking about. One of, there's a hospital system in North Carolina where it's got about 1,000 hospital beds and about 1,500 billing clerks. And that's that's a lot of expense. You have the administrators on the hospital side and the administrators on the insurance side that are constantly going back and forth hours and hours and hours of time and money. So those are the kinds of places where, where a lot of the savings from Medicare for all come from. So it turns out that when you crunch the numbers, the amount of money that's going to doctors and hospitals under Medicare for all is probably higher than it is in, in the current system. So overall on net, Hospitals and doctors aren't, aren't making less money under Medicare for All. What changes, though, is the distribution. There are huge inequities in how doctors and hospitals are getting paid. And one of the trends that we uncover in the book is how the monopolization of the healthcare industry, where if you look around to most cities today, there's usually one, sometimes two huge hospital systems that have bought up their competitors, they bought up physician practices, they have satellite practices. And if you're a monopoly hospital, you can raise your prices year after year after year. So what happens now is you have a huge inequity where if you're the monopoly hospital, you're getting paid very well. But if you're the safety net hospital, you're not getting paid well at all. So one thing that Medicare for All would do is it would, it would bring more equity to that. You, in the current system, j- just to say it straight, you get paid more for treating a rich person than a poor person. That's just how it works in the current system. And Medicare for all would change that. You'd get paid the same amount, no matter who walks in your door. So it would have some some equality uh, between the hospitals that take care of the rich people and the hospitals that take care of the poor people. That's a quote that one of the hospital CEOs gave us for the book. And then the other piece is you'd have more equality between the different kinds of doctors, where right now, if you're a primary care doctor, you get paid over the course of your career, literally millions of dollars less than someone who is in, for instance, a surgical specialty. So one of the things that, that Medicare for All would do is have more equity in what types of services we're paying for. So primary care services, which we know are critical for public health, would get paid a little bit better, and elective surgical procedures would probably get paid a little bit less. So on net, you know, in pure financial terms, there'd be some winners and losers, um, but you'd have a lot more equity in the way that doctors and hospitals are getting paid, and you would do it in an intentional way where 
one way to think about Medicare for all is that it makes health insurance a public health program where you can design the policy to actually promote public health goals, to incentivize things like prevention, or to actually get services into the communities that need them most. So that's, that's the, the goal behind Medicare for All. And then the way that it manifests in the policy is actually putting the dollars behind those goals to make sure that they go towards those priorities. I'll just also jump in on that point. Um, you know, doctors have been uh, fully left out of the corporatization of, of healthcare. And um, it used to be, right, that, that doctors used to work for other doctors. I mean, usually you'd expect that as a physician, you would either start your own practice or you'd go work for someone else's practice until you became a partner. Um, in 2018, for the first time, the median doctor no longer worked for a, another physician. And um, that has been because of the corporatization of healthcare in the ways that large healthcare corporations can uh, maneuver each other to, uh, to get better rates for um, the services that they provide than a single doctor operating out uh, in the world could on their own. And so in a lot of ways, um, uh, moving to Medicare for all, where you have one uh, government uh, entity that is providing one rate for all services, no matter how big or small the provider is, uh, gives physicians an opportunity to, uh, to think about themselves as business owners again and uh, to compete on the, the value of the care that they provide rather than uh, on whether or not they belong to the biggest healthcare provider uh, in the local community. And so um, that really is important to understand about the preferences of physicians. Um, and then the last point I'll just make about this is that, you know, both Mike and I went to medical school because we thought it was a great way to help heal people. And, um, you know, I, I, I can only speak for myself here, but when I realized what the healthcare system was, I realized it was part of what had created so many of the disparities that I got into medicine to jump in to address in the first place. And part of the value here is turning our healthcare system into something that is focused on treating people rather than servicing the bottom line for people. And you talk to any doctor uh, who operates in our system and they'll tell you, they can name all of the inefficiencies of the system as it stands, knowing that the reason why is because it probably aligns to some uh, profit question, bottom line question for uh, their employer. And that that is gut-wrenching um, and it shouldn't be that way. And so there is a moral uh, moral dividend on um, really uh, uh, picking this up uh, and asking how do we turn our system into something that really does dignify the practice of medicine again. We're also uh, we also have a question about California's single payer bill. I'm not sure if either or both of you are familiar with that. That California did actually propose its own single payer system, and it's something that I you know was curious about as I was reading your book. You know. If supposing Medicare for all does not pass at any time soon at the federal level, you know, is it feasible for a state like California to do it, do it on it, do it on its own first? Or do you need all 50 states in the game for this to really work? So, you know, if you look at the history of, of this reform uh, in Canada, when they uh, built their single payer healthcare system, it started in Saskatchewan, single province. And it worked so well that um, the rest of the country started to follow suit until it became federal law. Uh, and um, we could do the same thing here. I ran on a single payer platform in Michigan, uh, and I believe that it can work and it is the right way forward. At the same time, it does require the participation of the federal government. You know, states just simply can't pass, um, they can't pass budgets that leave them in the red. They have to be in the black every single year. And so financing major healthcare reform becomes really difficult unless you are willing, unless the federal government is willing to allow you to, to sort of rethink the way that you use the money that comes in 
uh, to fund programs like Medicaid uh, and, 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 and elsewise. And so um, there is a lot of potential uh, for state-based single-payer platform pushes. I hope that um, California or New York that's also considering uh, a move in this direction will uh, make that possible because I do think that uh, it will demonstrate what can happen uh, across the rest of the country. At the same time, I think we've got to be pushing across multiple different frames. One uh, will be the state level approach and one will be the federal approach. And I think uh, both together are what really create the kind of outcomes that we want. Uh, another question uh, from the audience. Joe Biden has advocated for adding the public option to the Affordable Care Act, which was blocked during the passage um, in 2009. Do you believe that this will bring us closer to a Medicare for all program that we can build on? Mike, you want to jump in? I've got some ideas on that, but... <laughs> Okay, so um, I, I had the privilege of serving on the Sanders-Biden uh, Unity Healthcare Task Force. And of course, I support Medicare for all, um, but uh, I know that one of our goals was uh, to leverage the moment, right, and reframe the, the Biden platform around the circumstances in which we find ourselves uh, post-pandemic. And we had a couple of different ways of thinking about that to answer your question. Um, Number one, the public option has to be truly public, right? It cannot be a public option version of Medicare Advantage, which is, you know, a pot of funds that go to uh, major healthcare corporations to provide, in effect, subsidized uh, uh, private coverage, right? Or subsidized public coverage, or subsidized um, uh, private coverage um, that that nets uh, the private company's public money. Um, the second is that it has to be uh, large enough and uh, quality enough in the ways that. Um, you know, it, it offers the, the, the payment and support um, and cover enough uh, that it really can be a good stepping uh, stool to, to Medicare for all. Um, the public option that uh, Biden ran on that we proposed uh, is a truly public public option that has zero deductible and is fully subsidized uh, for up to 200% of poverty. So for a family of four, that'd be a family of four making $52,000 a year. Um, so it really is quite generous. And, um, and in that respect, I do think that it has the potential. But I usually just, I think through a very simple rubric about whether or not I think something moves us in the right direction. Does it increase the footprint of, of, of public access to insurance? Does it reduce the power of major corporations? And uh, does it increase uh, overall healthcare coverage? And I think the Biden plan does. At the same time, right, it's not Medicare for all. And um, it is a potential step uh, that is both some part of it in the direction toward Medicare for all and some part of it out, you know, to the side. But, um, you know, the, the, the point that I often make to folks about this question is, you know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can support Medicare for all uh, and say that this is the outcome that we want to create in the long term and support efforts to provide uh, high quality government health care coverage uh, for people in the short term uh, as a means to, 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 to proving concept. Uh, and moving us in the right direction. And they're not mutually exclusive in my mind. Michael, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think one thing here is that the label of the public option is now so broad where what can be called a public option healthcare reform plan, it spans a huge range from things that in my view would not change the system in almost any meaningful way. You know, you can have it available just some of the proposals, you have it only in certain geographical locations, and it's only available to people who currently buy 
Obamacare insurance, not through people, not um, for folks who get insurance through their jobs, et cetera. Or on the other end of the spectrum, you know, what's in the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force um, proposal, which is actually quite a robust public option plan. It, it takes after, it takes its inspiration from Medicare for All in many respects for all the, all the ways that Abdul is mentioning, um, where it would have no deductible for lots of services, low-income people wouldn't have to pay a premium for it, you would automatically enroll people in it who are eligible. So I think where we fall on that spectrum is really important because I think there is a huge political risk of passing a public option kind of to say that you did it and then having it not really deliver high quality healthcare to a lot of people, I think would be a really big disappointment. And I think that if you're going to pass a public option, you want people to want it. You want to show people that, look, the government can actually put together a health insurance plan that's way better than what you're having now and that you want to be on it. So I think if, if a public option is to pass, that would be, that would be uh, my hope. It's, it's got to be done as well as possible and to make it something that, that people who aren't on it envy being on it. And that's how I think you push people in that direction. Um, we're getting some questions about mental health services. And I think sort of to this point of, you know, how do you, how do you want people to be on it? There's also this question of how do you get, you know, providers to want to be part of this system? And something that we saw with the Affordable Care Act was that there was a, a belief or an assumption that once, you know, insurance was accessible to more people, that more therapists and mental health providers would accept insurance. And it didn't really turn out that way. And so we have a lot of mental health providers who don't take insurance because it's too much of a hassle to work with the insurance company or it takes too much time. And they can just make so much more money charging people out of pocket because there's enough you know, wealthy people who are willing to pay out of pocket for that service. Can you talk a little bit about how you know, a Medicare for all plan could address this both in terms of access for the patients, but also in terms of, you know, willingness of, of this particular sector of providers to participate. Yeah, so two thoughts here. One is, I think it's important of to, to understand the negotiating power that a program like Medicare Today or Medicare for All has, where if you take the example of Medicare today, it's just such an enormous pool of patients that, you know, it's, it's, it's voluntary for a doctor or a hospital to sign up with Medicare. But it just turns out because so many patients are on Medicare, you have over 98% of doctors and hospitals are taking Medicare patients. So by doing it through Medicare for All, as opposed to through the Affordable Care Act, where, you know, you're just one insurance company, uh, on one piece of the insurance market in one geographic location, you don't actually have that much leverage. And you know that's why you have a lot of narrow networks in private insurance plans. That's one of the, the tools that companies use to, to compete with each other. And then patients are left out with narrow networks. And we see that in the data. We see the narrow networks um, that are in Affordable Care Act plans. So by moving to, to Medicare for All, almost every, every provider is going to choose to accept Medicare for all because everyone would would be on it, you know. And just like in Medicare today, you know, there are a couple fringe cases um, where folks who, who decline the insurance, and maybe that would be the case under Medicare for all. But 
the, the networks would expand enormously. The, the second point here, though, is um, there's also a, a parallel priority to Medicare for All about healthcare workforce. And there are ways that um, pursuing a universal program like Medicare for All is itself a workforce policy, where right now you have at least 30 million patients. But then when you go down to specific services like mental health care, if, if folks don't have good coverage, there's tens of millions of Americans who need services, but providers can't get reimbursed to provide them because those folks don't have insurance. So if you have a universal program, you then provide an incentive for, for more people to enter the actual healthcare provision field. And then one of the things that Abdul and I argue in the book, and this really applies whether you support Medicare for all or support other reforms, is that investing in the healthcare workforce is another incredibly important priority. And whether it's through primary care, physicians, nurse practitioners, physicians assistants, or certainly in mental health care, in terms of therapists and psychologists and psychiatrists, there's a lot more investment that we should be doing so that no matter what healthcare system we're in, people actually have access to the doctors and hospitals in their area that are needed to guarantee them access to care. Abdul, uh, we're, we're getting close to uh, the end of the program. So um, this uh, maybe time for one or two more final questions. Um, Abdul, I think uh, I'll direct this one to you. There's just an enormous amount of opposition to Medicare for all, uh, lots and lots of money going into campaigns to um, defeat or diminish uh, the ideas. Can you talk a little bit about sort of, you know, how big the opposition is and what it would take to overcome it specifically in, in just getting this, a piece of legislation like this passed? Yeah, well, you know, the, 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 the amount of money and um, political power that is aligned against Medicare for all, I'll be honest with you, is an indictment against the way that our democracy has been, in a lot of ways, corrupted by money and political power. And um, you look at poll after poll, and at least a majority of people support this. Uh, and despite that, right, we are not even close uh, to uh, having the kind of positionality that we need to advance this legislation. But here's the thing about, about politics is it's not usually linear. It doesn't usually work that you know, you get a little bit of support, you look up and you get a little bit more and a little bit more, and then soon enough you're there. It's that all of a sudden there is a groundswell of people who have come together around what they believe ought to be the law of the land, and they can oppose the money and the power that is aligned against this. You know, to, when I say money and power, I just want to explain what I mean by that. The insurance industry in 2020 made bumper profits. They made uh, many billions of dollars more than they ever thought they would because of the cancellation of elected procedures, which are a major lifeline for hospitals. And um, they spent in the same year $151 million uh, to lobby their uh, the elected officials, right? Many of whom uh, they have spent money to get elected. And on top of that, they spent millions of dollars running ads on TV to fearmonger us about how much Medicare for all was going to cost, about how it was going to ration healthcare, about how it was going to eliminate choice. And we all know all the talking points because we see them on TV. Um, 845 lobbyists they uh, employ in and around Capitol Hill. That's nearly two per elected member of Congress. Now, what this says is that they know that really uh, a real reform, Medicare for all, 
would uh, be an existential threat to business as they know it. And when your business is not aligned with people's basic healthcare rights, um, what the question we have to ask is, why are we allowing this kind of corporate influence into our politics in the first place? And what could we have if we were to step up against it? And so in some respects, the fight for Medicare for all is part and parcel of the fight for true democracy in the sense that we have taken um, the, the, the money and the power uh, that major corporations can leverage into our politics out of the picture uh, and empowered our elected officials to do the will of the people. That really is what has to happen if we're going to get there. Um, and we have a chapter in the book called Organizing versus Advertising. Um, I think people can hear what I just said and say, well, it's a, it's a dead fight anyway. There's nowhere we win it. We're just not going to get there. Look at, we've been fighting for this for so long and uh, we're not there yet. But the point that I, I want them to remember is they're fighting as hard as they can because they know that we can win. And uh, we have to know that we can win. And we have to decide that we are going to spend our time, energy, and resources toward doing, doing that, whether that's working uh, to elect politicians who believe in this, whether that is working uh, to organize uh, in our local communities and to raise uh, voices, whether that's working to uh, get real facts out to people about what this would mean uh, for our healthcare. That is this fight. And uh, my hope is that people take note of how far we've come and how hard they're pushing against us to recognize that actually the one thing they want us to believe is that we cannot win. And the one thing we have to do is make sure that we come together because we can. Um, and, and that really is going to be the way that this gets done uh, if and when it happens, uh, I think sometime far sooner than, than any of us uh, see coming. And I, that, that's my final question. You know, as you said, we've you, people have been fighting for this for so long, you know, 100 years, arguably, based on the history that you write about in your book. What timeline do you think is realistic for when this might happen, for when all the pieces uh, could come together? Or what are your hopes and dreams for that timeline, I should say? I'm going to put out a prediction that there will not be a, uh, a candidate for president who does not support some form of single payer healthcare in the future on the democratic side. I, I just think that um, this conversation is, is going to advance. It's going to continue moving forward. Uh, and this is going to become sine qua non of the democratic party. That's, that's my, that's my prediction. Do you have a prediction, Micah? I don't have a prediction, but I can tell you the way that I, I think about this is, you know, we, we know that the opposition of the industry can be overcome because it's happened before. And if you look to Medicare, that's exactly what happened. There were so many years where if you were a savvy political pundit counting votes over the next two years, you would say, Medicare, this is never going to happen. You don't have the votes. And they would have been right in the short term, but people kept organizing and it wasn't clear when the moment would happen whether it was going to be in 1958 or 1960 or 1962 or 1964. And then all of a sudden the pieces were in place and it happened. And now over half a century later, whenever I see a patient over 65, I know that they can get the healthcare that they need. And that's really what it comes down to. And it's, that's what I think gives so many people the, the confidence and the energy to keep fighting for this because no one can confidently predict when the opportunity will arise to get this done, but you only need to win once. And once we have healthcare as a human right, that will be a generational and a historic achievement. And I think that is something that a lot of people find it worth fighting for. 
Well, thank you so much to you both, uh, Abdul El Sayed and Micah Johnson, the authors of the new book we've been talking about today, Medicare for All, A Citizen's Guide. Uh, we'd also like to thank our audience for watching and participating live. If you would like to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making virtual programming, please visit commonwealthclub.org online. I'm April Denboski. Thank you and stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.